welcome to Science and Sage, a podcast where I focus on creating and claiming space for Indigenous voices in medicine. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Terry Aldred, and we're going to have a conversation about um, her pathway to medicine and her indigeneity. So, Dr. Aldred, would you like to introduce yourself? So my name is Terry Lee Aldred. I'm Dr. Catherine Swiss on my mom's side, and I am Métis Cree and mixed European on my dad's side. Um, but I was raised and identify with being Dekath or Carrier from Klasden, a member of Lasilu, the Frog Clan, traditionally known as the Voice of the People. Uh, I was born in and currently live, work, and play on the Klaitle today traditional territory, traditional territory, sorry, otherwise known as Prince George. Uh, and I pretty much uh, grew up in mostly in North Central BC, um, so in Prince George, as well as um, spent a great deal of time in Grand Isle and on reserve in the community of Tatchat, which is Lake Babine Nation, uh, which was my stepmom's community. Thank you. I think I said this in one of my previous episodes, but I always prefer to allow for my guests to introduce themselves because I could never, um, I could never do that justice. And we all have our own ways of um, introduction. So uh, I really appreciate that. So maybe we could just start by chatting a little bit about um, what drew you to medicine or how did you end up in this career? Yeah, so it's a bit of a long story. I was definitely not one of those people who knew from when they were five years old that they wanted to go into medicine. Uh, I had actually no concept that it was a even a possibility. I actually, when I was really young, I wanted to become a singer. Um, and in recent years, I've been reflecting on, you know, the fact that my dad really was so encouraging um, and just like had in gentle ways, was just like, well, just remember to stay in school. It's always important to like, you know, um, yeah, to, to do that piece. Um, and you can still work on, on singing. Um, but just thinking about how much I use my voice now, um, mm -hmm. and just how much he encouraged me and just, uh, really taught me that no matter what I wanted or what my dreams were to believe in them. Um, and I think that that did help me later when, um, medicine came on the horizon, but seemed like a huge reach. I grew up uh, pretty poor um, and definitely um, in our family had legacy effects from colonialism, including addictions and um, abuse and that sort of thing. But through that, I, I always felt very loved. I had, uh, you know, I was really connected to my larger extended family. My parents were separated. Um, but that resulted in me having two bonus parents. And so um, I had, at any given time, I always felt that there was a safe person around, which I think was really important. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of fast forwarding, I eventually decided that maybe I wasn't going to become a singer and that I became interested in sciences. I was always uh, a, a reasonable student. I uh, you know, I found school was a place of encouragement and safety, and I had some aptitude. I became kind of a teacher's pet. And so I kind of, you know, really liked to do well so that I could get kind of that positive reinforcement. And 
And I started becoming interested in science because I really wanted a good job. Like I wasn't really interested in education for the sake of education. Um, One of the reasons why my parents encouraged education was to break the cycle. They didn't want us to have to struggle as much as they did. And so initially I was actually interested in medical trades um, because I did have a, uh, you know, one of my core values is around giving back to my community and, um, you know, becoming the best version of myself, the, you know, the teaching around the pride of one is the pride of all, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just about you. Um, And so I, so I was kind of interested in medicine in that respect. Um, but I, I wanted a trade cause I thought like two, three years of school and then I could, you know, get a good job. And, and so that was kind of my sights. I won a scholarship to, um, to the university in Prince George for my first year. And that's where all my friends were going. So I decided to do that, which actually changed my path towards pharmacy. Um, And so while getting my prerequisites for pharmacy, I kind of started thinking about, you know, what that would look like. And I really wanted to develop like, you know, an interdisciplinary clinic that went around to really small isolated communities, like where, like the ones where I came from. And, you know, when I was sharing this to my professors at the time, they're like, oh, well, wouldn't it make more sense if you if you went into medicine and I like laughed in their face. Um, Cause I was like, I don't really know where doctors come from, but I'm for sure know that they don't come from where I come from. And they thought I was ridiculous. And, um, and so they just gently encouraged me. And so at the end I was like, well, fine. If you write all my letters, I will do the MCAT and I'll just apply. Um, and in the meantime, I got into pharmacy Um, and was still putting in my application to medicine. And, you know, I I really didn't know about all the forums and how they let people know the results through like email and all of these things. So I, uh, you know, I I just kind of put it together, however, you know, however I thought. Um, And uh, I didn't actually have a personal computer or cell phone at the time. you know, I, yeah, didn't have a lot of extras. Um, and I was actually visiting my brother who had a computer, um, in the summer after my first year of pharmacy and decided to check my, um, school email. And I had gotten the email, um, that I got, uh, admitted into medicine and, and it was three weeks late. And so I only had like a week left to tell them if I was going to accept the offer. (laughs) Um, and they required like this down payment that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in pharmacy. So I was like, well, I'm fairly certain I can become a pharmacist. I have no idea if I can become a doctor. And so I was really scared. And one of the teachings, again, that I kind of, you know, um, drew upon was that, you know, fear is the only thing holding you back, then that's your path. And, and so I scrambled and tried to borrow money from every, (laughs) from as many people as I could to, to get together the, the amount of money I need to accept. And I had only applied to one school because I didn't realize that there was different deadlines. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want to move far from home and all of these different factors. And so, Um, I was, I guess, 
like I often say, like I got, <laughs> I got into med school because of grit and faith and, um, and so I decided to accept the offer and I managed to get the money together at the last minute. And, and now I, looking back on it, I think that medicine was uh, in a lot of ways, the best and the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, it's opened up an amazing amount of doors. Um, and you know what, I've, um, it launched me into a, a place of a lot of privilege uh, where I came from. I, I did not have a lot. Um, and yet it was a, a fairly traumatizing experience uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a, what a journey. I feel like what you've said about um, it just not even being on your radar is such a, universal experience for a lot of Indigenous students. Something that you said um, yesterday, actually, at our gathering really resonated with me. And you talked about how you've kind of looked towards um, the people in years above you as that little bit of representation that helped you throughout your um, journey once you were in medical school. And I can really connect with that as well. And that's kind of one of the reasons why this podcast was born is if we can move that forward a little bit for high school students or for younger Indigenous students to be able to hear a story like yours and think, wow, that sounds so much like me um, and know that it's within reach, I think is, um, yeah, I think it's so important. It's something that I I really hope to, to do with this podcast you started to talk a little bit about the ex- your experience in medical school and how difficult that's been. Do you mind um, elaborating on that? Yeah. So I think my first year of medicine, like, was amazing. <laughs> uh, I was like invited to uh, to sit on like Indigenous student panels at these conferences, like in Ottawa and. Um, different places and so it was my first time ever like being on a plane and I got to stay at the Fairmont Laurier and I was like holy man like this is (laughs) like this is insane like I it just I remember calling my dad collect from like the hotel room being like oh my god dad I can see the parliament buildings there's this huge chandelier it's like and it's so crazy like it it just like definitely was uh (laughs) you know, um, yeah, just like, like I said, opened up all these doors and experiences. And, you know, I think my first year was pretty good. Second year, definitely. um, Yeah, I I think I probably that's when I started to get burnt out. I was involved in a lot of different things and the student body as well as the Aboriginal health group. Uh, and, you know, certainly the uh, academic load was increasing, but I was also starting to, there were certain things going on, you know, personally that was challenging. And, and so I think that's where it started. And then, uh, I decided I always wanted to do family medicine. Like I wanted to be, you know, in really rural remote places. So, it was just essentially the only option to do what I wanted to do. Um, And, and in particular that I also was really interested in rural family med 
And it was the first year that our medical school, or no, it's the second year that our medical school was piloting this integrated community clerkship. Um, and I really wanted to do that for my third year. And, you know, I think in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best choice just given, um, you know, some of things that were happening uh, personally and in particular, just removing me from my support network. Um, but, you know, I went and unfortunately I, I had like a really um, abusive preceptor um, who was really well-versed in shame-based teachings, mm. kind of came from a, you know, a pretty sexist background again. And yeah, and so I just, um, it, it really activated a lot of trauma. I think I, you know, I had a lot of protective factors and resilience factors that protected me from some of my childhood trauma. Um, and part of that was that, you know, school was always a safe place, as I mentioned before. And so um, when suddenly, you know, my, my academic vocation wasn't a safe for me anymore, um, it really, uh, it really had a profound effect on my nervous system. And I started developing a lot of signs and symptoms of, of, of course, burnout, but also like, you know, chronic fatigue. And, you know, I started having um, problems like GI issues and stomach problems and um, started, you know, having symptoms of like attention deficit, like all sorts of things just from, you know, my nervous system not being able to cope anymore. And so I eventually like called in student affairs and, um, and eventually like I was kind of removed from that rotation and brought back to the city. And I, uh, I think part, you know, I think it was one thing to have the abusive preceptor. Um, and even though this, the quote unquote system or the school really intent, I really feel like the individuals in the system, their intentions were to help. Um, the way that everything was handled, I think um, just reinforced my trauma and mistrust and feelings of lack of safety. Uh, one, and so part of that was because I had to then kind of jump through a series of hoops to prove that I could go back to my studies. And one of them was to be cleared by a psychiatrist and they used a specific psychiatrist that seen the students. And I was so thankful um, that they did do that because at the end he was like, you know, you're fine. Like you had an acute stress reaction because you're in a bad situation with an abusive preceptor away from your support network, um, but you're fine and you can go back to school. And he actually outlined exactly what they were going to do. And at the time I didn't really believe him because I was like, oh no, they've been so lovely and all of these things. And, and he was right. And so part of it was then I had to get uh, like an IQ assessment because apparently there might be something wrong with my IQ as oh why goodness. I struggled. <laughs> um, I needed to do like a, you know, a two week family practice um, stint, which probably made sense to kind of see where I was clinically, which was really great. And they were like, yeah, no, you're absolutely fine. And it actually made me believe that I actually still wanted to do medicine because I actually felt good when I would <laughs> leave the clinic and mm -hmm. I would actually want to study because I didn't feel so stupid. And, um, and so, and then, uh, essentially like I, I, you know, ticked off all their boxes. 
and at the like at the end of it they're like oh well you know like it sounds like you've been through a lot um you should probably just take the rest of the year off and, and just rejoin at the you know next year and I was like I know <laughs> I'm like I am not repeating this six months this was not my fault um and you know like all my evaluations up to the point that I left were actually good um and so yeah. And, and all of these things. And so I, you know, essentially, uh, you know, I just strongly advocated for myself. And I said, you know, like, if I have to, like, I will start sharing my story far and wide. It's a new program. I'm sure you don't want me to start talking, but I am not doing that. And you're working with me so that I can finish with my classmates. Like, um, it was, it was just something that was really important to me, especially because like I jumped through all the hoops and, and, and yet I felt like I was being blamed. And it was that kind of like, reactivation of like the victim blaming and and nothing was being done to that preceptor like so yeah so anyway I uh, I did advocate and eventually they you know they decided to make it work and we you know um kind of condensed the last year and a half um by using a lot of my elective time to make up any core rotations I might have missed and um and I graduated with my class and, um, and, you know, actually when I was back in the city and rotating through, you know, I, it was a bit of, again, I, I kind of feel like the creator has definitely tested me and has caused me to grow, but then has given me grace. Cause I, I had an amazing internal medicine team. Um, and I, I did really well. And I, my general surgery was just like, so amazing. And, you know, my psychiatry, like I had like this amazing psychiatrist I worked with who, you know, really built up, you know, um, you know, my confidence and different things. And so, um, like, like the remainder of my time actually went really well. And, um, and I got my first choice in CARMS and landed in the UBC Indigenous Family Medicine Program. And I had an interesting CARMS journey that if we, if we'd like to, we can, we can talk about that. But um, yeah, so it, it was pretty, I guess that six, first six months of clerkship was really, really, really challenging. And I think in a lot of ways, like I'm still recovering from that and may never like return to my baseline before that experience. And certainly it's partly in part because of me coming in um, with um, childhood trauma and different things. And I think that it could have been mitigated if, you know, some of the things we know about resilient factors and how to help people through, you know, stressful times would be better integrated into medicine. And, and in addition to, you know, things that were brought up at the gathering yesterday, including cultural factors, like having, uh, you know, having more access to um, like elders or ceremony or things that could help mitigate um, some of the stress that was on my system, I think could have been really instrumental in, in changing the course that I went on. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's something, I mean, I haven't gone through clerkship yet and I haven't, haven't gone through any of those experiences, but since starting medicine for me, I think I had a, a shift in my perspective. I kind of came into the program with this like 
really idealistic um, excitement about, oh yeah, like this pathway exists for Indigenous um, applicants. And I was just so overjoyed at the idea that my my voice or my experience could um, be really valued. And not to say that it isn't, but I had a, a transition period where I really just had to remember that this is absolutely a Western colonial system that was not made for me or for us. And that's really scary to me. And again, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because I feel like, unfortunately, it's by us being in these spaces that really bring to light how unjust they still are and um yeah it just it is so frustrating to hear when our people are impacted in such a negative way in in medicine and so thank you for sharing (laughs) I really appreciate your story you started to talk a little bit about about CARMS I don't really know very much about what that system is like, especially as an Indigenous person. Um, Would you be able to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, one thing I'll just add to to the last part of the conversation um, is, you know, when people have experienced trauma, like one of the one of the things that, you know, helps even patients, like if a patient discloses something traumatizing that's happened to them, that one of the most powerful things is just to acknowledge that it, to them, that it happened and it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, you know, we kind of, sometimes we don't translate what we know in patient care to other professional or academic or leadership positions. And, and so in my, one of my roles now as the Indigenous Family Medicine Program site director is that I'm really passionate about advocating for my residents, um, aka um, talking to people who, you know, ha- may have caused harm, however inadvertently, um, if the resident feels that that's safe to do so, and they don't always, and that's okay. Because I think part of the factor was that nothing and nobody ever addressed this with the preceptor. Like every, everything that needed to write my course was on me mm-hmm. and all of the attention was on me. And then the other thing is to acknowledge to them that that, that must have, like whatever experience that I had, um, that it wasn't like that I'm sorry, that it wasn't okay and it shouldn't have happened. And, you know, in the system, I sometimes do feel handcuffed, like I wish there was more I could do, but at least that there's a, a couple things I can do so that they know that someone's in their corner, someone has their back. And my resident safety is the most important thing to me. I will deal with the wrath of whoever, but if my residents don't feel safe, if they don't feel okay, then they know that they have my 100% support to walk out of any situation um, that that makes them uh, that makes them feel unsafe. And it has happened, and I do support them because we shouldn't. There's things that in medicine that you that you need that there is a resilience factor. Like you know, it, 
it can be really trying. It could be very long days. You, you're often seeing people on like the worst days of their life, especially in really acute care situations. Um, and that, and we need, you know, as physicians, we, I hope that we all remain affected by those things. Um, but we also need to develop ways that we can move those emotions through so that we're not holding on to them. And, and, and that sort of thing, that's the, that's a part of medicine that won't change because we're, we're called to be healers to walk with people during those challenging moments. But there's things in medicine about our culture of medicine that we shouldn't develop resilience for. And that's mm-hmm. things like being shamed, um, harassed, belittled, you know, having, you know, some of our even human rights violated or feeling, um, you know, witnessing racism or experiencing racism. And, and in those um, instances, we need to be able to say, no, no, I'm not doing that. No, this is not okay. Um, And so that's, I've, I've heard it in the lingo saying that, you know, yes, there's resilience factors, but there's also resistant factors. And I think in our resistance, we can train people that there's a different way. I remember in residency, for example, uh, for our internal medicine, you know, the group of residents, um, you know, before the, uh, before we started, got together and said, you know, that we were committed to covering off each other's patients post-call so that after the morning rounds, um, we could, like whoever was post-call could leave. And it took less than a week where, cause we would do a table round and then the post-call person would be like, okay, I'm gonna sign off. And they're like, oh, well, no, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And the rest of us would be like, oh, no, don't worry. We're covering these two patients. I'm covering those two, you know, like we'd divvy them up. And by the Friday, um, our our senior resident, um, our junior resident and our attending, by the end of rounds would be like, okay, uh, would like be like to the post-call person, okay, bye, have a good day. Like, so in our resistance, we can sometimes help to change behaviors. And so I I just wanted to kind of add that. To kind of shift gears to CARMS. Um, CARMS is, uh, so I will put this out to say that I don't recommend anybody duplicate what I did for CARMS. It's probably not a recipe for success. In some cases, maybe, maybe it is. But I, I think I alluded to this yesterday at the gathering, <laughs> that I, like Dr. Veronica McKinney, who was the psych director before Danielle Ben Smith, I actually met her at one of those uh, leadership conferences in my first year, um, and she came came to talk to me after um, after I sat on this panel, and she told me about the Indigenous Family Medicine Program, and you know she was like, "Oh, it'd be perfect. You should totally consider it." And uh, and first year, I was like, "Okay." that's what I want to do. I want to go to the UBC Indigenous Family Medicine program when I'm done. And that was just what was fixated in my mind. And um, so fast forward, uh, the actual two years before I joined was 100% Indigenous uh, residents in the program, which is amazing. And I so and I happen to know a good 
a good amount of them through IPAC. And so I kind of started hearing that, you know, Dr. McKinney actually moved on. And so they went for a period without a site director um, and they're all based in Victoria and there wasn't as many opportunities um, or preceptors to kind of ensure that everybody had, you know, um, you know, a clinic or a preceptor that was actually seeing a large number of Indigenous patients. And so there's a number of critiques kind of rising. Um, but I was still like, you know, I, I really liked Victoria and, you know, I really liked all the residents. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm still going to give it a shot. And when I was planning for CARMS, I again didn't want to go past like Saskatchewan because I, you know, for me, just being closer to home was really important. Like, um, like I went home for almost, well, I think, yeah, all holidays until my residency when I'd be on call for some of them. Um, but if I wasn't on call, I was like, I was, I would always drive home the eight hours, 12 hours, whatever it took. Um, and so just being very far, I, I just couldn't imagine it. So that again, kind of restricted the number of sites and even though I did apply to some rural sites, I was a little bit leery given my um, experience in med school. Uh, and so I applied to um, pretty much all the sites in Alberta and BC. Um, I did do some electives in Calgary and me in Calgary as a city did not jive. <laughs> so I decided to pull them from my rank list. And then, so I was, so it was kind of dwindling. And then uh, when the interview schedule came out and I found out where I got interviews, the, all of the uh, Northern Alberta and U of A um interviews were on the first weekend so all the rural sites as well as u of a and all in the ubc interview that i got was actually the last weekend at carms which mean i i had like a two-week window in the middle where i had nothing um most of my colleagues were like traveling across the country during that time and so i was like hmm, well what should i do and so I decided to actually go to Mexico. <laughs> so I went to Mexico for a week in between my interviews. So my U of A interviews, I was, um, I was a different color than my UBC interviews. <laughs> and I, it was, it was my first solo trip and I had the most fun. It was like, um, so, so amazing. Um, I learned, yeah, just an incredible amount and um, yeah, just had a ridiculous amount of fun, which I didn't actually think was possible to go on my own. And it was like a really fulfilling and like provided a lot of opportunity for reflection and growth for me. Um, and yeah, and so uh, it actually worked out quite well <laughs> for me. But again, I, in hindsight, and after I did my interview at UBC, I was actually far less sure that my approach was a good idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, like I said, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but um, it, it worked out well for me, at least. <laughs> that is uh, hardcore, Dr. Aldred. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, I don't know that I would be able to relax, but I'm so glad that that worked out for you. That's, um, that's amazing. So I'm not too sure. Um, I think there are maybe more sites now for the 
Indigenous Family Medicine Residency, but where were you located? Yeah, so at that time, uh, we were located all in Victoria. And I'm really, I'm still, I'm so proud to be a UBC Indigenous Site alumni. And one of the magical things that happened (laughs) was that uh, at the time when I was at U of A, Dr. Uh, Danielle Ben-Smith came on as um, the Aboriginal Health Program lead and and her partner uh, was actually originally from Victoria. And so uh, right around the time that uh, I was moving to Victoria, we found out we got a new site director and it was Danielle Ben-Smith. So she was actually coming from the U of A with me to UBC uh, to be our site director. And um, I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, talk to her, get to know her. She's like, like, she's one of the most lovely human beings. (laughs) Um, She's super funny and just really kind and compassionate. And and that I think made a huge difference because it was just like a, a really beautiful shift in the program. And she really you know, heard um, the residents' concerns and like really set to work on paving a path to to improve the program. And so now the Indigenous site is distributed. And so we have residents based in Vancouver um, with a, a good amount of time in the downtown east side at um, Kaleoleum, Vancouver Native Health Society and Luma. And uh, and, that, and they're also partnered with our St. Paul's program. And then on the island, we have residents in Ladysmith, Duncan, and Victoria. And all of our preceptors on the island do have an element of outreach. Um, and they had demonstrated positive relationships with the communities that they serve. Yeah, so that really helped to address the fact that, you know, people weren't feeling that their exposure, that they weren't getting adequate exposure to Indigenous patients. And so that now, you know, especially our Vancouver based program, at least in that program, probably over 70% of the people that they see are um, Indigenous when they're in their core blocks. On the island, it's a bit more variable. Victoria, it's a high, high amount of Indigenous people. Duncan and Ladysmith, they're both full service family, kind of more rural family. And so they do see a bigger mix, but they also do outreach um, at least once a week. So provides a bit of that balance and the only program in Canada that its base is Indigenous health. So like their their home clinics, their periodic reviews, all of those are done by me and we lend into our associated sites for things like you know the regular academic days or exam prep or like core hospital rotations to ensure that our residents still are are graduating uh, with a strong skill set and a lot of different programs across the country, their core is kind of the regular family practice. And then they can choose to, you know, lend in or pull in parts of Indigenous health. Um, and it's not that one way is right or wrong. It's just a bit different. And so when we are recruiting in residents, we, uh, you know, we're kind of uh, recruiting in people who have who want to work with an indigenous populations, have a strong 
interest in social justice and equity. And we're kind of trying to build them up to being leaders so that wherever they decide to work and go, and we have alumni across the country and in the territories, so that they can become leaders in those areas. And I often say that we're kind of, you know, it's our small secret army. We're kind of like, UBC's one of UBC's best kept secrets <laughs> because I think we represent uh, like the best of um, multiple programs. Yeah, so and I'm biased because I'm the current site director. So I I followed Danielle's path when she because she moved on to the Ministry of Health, and there were enormous shoes to fill, <laughs> and it's honestly been like the biggest joy in work. Like. By the time I was a second year resident, like I thought I was going to finish and like run from any sort of academic or institutional anything and never look back. Um, and it was actually really during an Indigenous ceremony in Hawaii that made me realize that that reaction was, you know, part of like the resentment and trauma I was carrying. And during the ceremony, I was able to let that go and what was left was you know I have I have a strong need to get back to my community to be of service um and what kind of came the message that came to me was like well physicians and students and people in medicine are now a part of your community and so you also have a, a duty or service to get back to them in some way and that really just struck like kind of just stuck with me you know because like just like we see the health disparities in in indigenous communities also looking at like resident physician and student suicide rates were just coming up in the news and and you know how our rate of suicide was much higher than the general population and the rates of burnout and all of these things and struck me that, you know, um, that there's probably ways that I could help the physician community, especially with my, you know, with Indigenous ways of knowing and being, and how that was so instrumental in keeping me well. And so, yeah, so I kind of, um, being in the role as the Indigenous Family Medicine uh, site, site director, uh, it was kind of like a, a beautiful marrying of um, both of those communities that I wanted to help give back and make better. And, you know, I, again, bias, but like the residents that come into our program are just such amazing people and they're such amazing doctors. And it's just such a pleasure to um, be able to walk their resident journey with them. Um, I know they're always really relieved to be done residency and I'm always really sad. <laughs> um, and, you know, our site coordinator, Carlia, is just like phenomenal. And, and our preceptors are people who are just so, are also just so committed. They want to be good teachers. They're really engaged. Um, many came to the gathering yesterday. And, and so it's just, it's just been such a, a, a joy and work for me. Well, you have me sold. <laughs> um, that is, that's so amazing. Can you talk a little bit about um, what your current practice looks like? So you have this role as the site director, and then um, I'm assuming you also have a really well-rounded practice as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I, 
um, when I finished residency, I uh, worked in a um, in an inner city clinic for a while and did rural locums in Bella Bella. Um, and then eventually I decided to take a 0.5 position with Bella Bella, which I did for a couple years. And um, while I continued doing outreach with Carrie County Family Services, and then a uh, eventually, like the Carrie County Family Services program was expanding, and they offered me a full time job and kind of trying to, you know, navigate going to Bella Bella half time and then doing outreach like I was almost never home and, and so I decided that I would take the full time position with Carrie County, and so I did that. And during that process um, is when I became the site director around 2015 then I had a bit of a balance and I've always done a little bit of clinical skills and you know would help out at you know conferences or doing some teaching um as well and then I actually from my work with the with the residency program I actually um started hearing a lot from our you know, alumni that they really missed the connection that our residency program had, that they really wanted, you know, a place to come together with like-minded people. And so I learned of the Rural Coordination Center um, and my colleague, Dr. John Palovich, um, introduced me to Dr. Ray Markham, who is the physician lead um, around them, them wanting to, you know, have um, to work more from on Indigenous health initiatives and different things and they invited me to kind of come be part part of the organization to help um in Indigenous like yeah so I became kind of the lead in Indigenous health um we don't really have titles that much but <laughs> that's how I've described it and as part of that they um they were kind of like well is there like uh an a project or something that you'd really like to see happen and I was like oh well actually um and that's kind of where the idea of a BC Indigenous health um network came um came to life so to speak um and then uh, at the same and so I started kind of reaching out to different people um and eventually talked to Dr. Evan Adams and um he connected me with Dr. Nell Wyman and I found out that Nell and James and Leah were actually looking to try to get some funding to to bring together Indigenous health professionals like um, in medicine and uh, um, but their proposal didn't go through and I was like oh well I actually probably have you know I have a bit of a budget and so we could work together and um, and so that's how our gathering <laughs> started. Um, and we kind of built it upon, upon the student retreat, as James was mentioning yesterday. And, and so then I, I had this portfolio of work with Indigenous or with the Rural Coordination Centre, which has kind of exploded a little bit. <laughs> so I'm working on a research project. I have an uh, Indigenous patient-led um, continuing CPD, continual professional education um, uh, project that I'm helping to co-lead um, with Elder Roberta Price. And, uh, and yeah, there's just a lot of different projects that's come up um, through my work with them. And while I was still managing my, my, uh, my work with Carrie Sakani, but um, kind of as that work increased, some of my clinical work decreased. So it, yeah, trying to provide a bit of a balance and then COVID hit. 
and then I decided I needed more work. And, uh, and so in, I, I applied for the medical director position within FNHA, like FNHA was always an organization like I kind of worked, you know, with, like I often partnered with them. And, you know, like obviously the First Asia's Health Authority is something that's really unique in Canada. And, and it was always a, a place that I was interested to in being more involved and, you know, having a role in some capacity. And because I of my work with the residents, I really wanted to try to bring what I learned into trying to create a medical affairs department that was rooted in Indigenous ways of knowing and being that really can support physicians who want to work in our communities, Indigenous and non-Indigenous physicians, um, to give them the supports and resources they need to do that work in a good way. And rooted in the philosophy that when they're healthy and well, they're going to spread their wellness to the communities, right? Yeah, so that was kind of my passion, um, but it's definitely resulted in a very full plate. So I, I still um, work with Carissa County for my clinical roles, um, but now it's that work is 25% of my time, so one week a month, and then um, I'm working with FNHA and and as the UBC and the RCCBC for the other three, three weeks. It, it's definitely a tricky balance. As somebody who works in their traditional territory on like in community, um, you know, it, it has a different impact for me than I think it does for others. Uh, and, you know, I, I had to learn how to balance that over the years because, you know, like their trauma is my trauma, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, I think now was talking about this yesterday, like, you know, it's not like we are experiencing what our communities are experiencing. And yeah, so for me, I, uh, you know, I'm actually finding the balance right now is one that um, is working well because I absolutely love my clinic right now. Like, whereas before I found, I would sometimes find it really challenging to find the time to refill my cup when I was doing a lot more clinical. Yeah, it it would some, I would sometimes feel like there'd be an element of anticipatory anxiety and stuff. And now like, I just, I just love it. I, you know, I look forward to my clinics and I, yeah. And I, you know, can't wait to go. And I feel like I can provide much better care and and I think it is also balanced with the fact that I like I still struggle with the concept of Western medicine sometimes. Like I, I hands down, like it's miraculous. It does so much, and you know, definitely prolongs lives. Like we're living longer, and all of these things. Um, but like my my own personal philosophy is much more of an integrative approach. And so, and I, I find it really hard to actually practice that way. Like, even though I'm, I'm very privileged, I've always been an alternative payment plan physician. So I've always had more time with my patients. And, but yeah, so I think, I think there's a, a few things. The other thing is, is that I think that my, you know, we're talking about like zones of genius or like places that we really excel. Like, I really think like my role as teacher and mentor and, like in leadership roles, um, is just a, a place where I've just found that I, I can make a really big impact. I hope that makes sense, but it, it's a challenging decision. But all that to say is I actually 
that's what my practice looks like now. <laughs> Thank you for going through all of that. It's really interesting to hear you um, talk about that transition, especially working within your home community, because it's something that I see in myself is uh, I feel a huge sense of responsibility to care for my people and to care for my community, especially because they're the ones that have supported me throughout this journey. And have just like, it's just unconditional, like love and excitement and, and support for me in my journey. Um, and then I also struggle with, um, going back and forth in what I call like Eagle view and mouse view. So mouse view for me is, um, kind of what you were talking about with clinical work and seeing the impact that you have on the patients in front of you. And then also Eagle view in knowing that from a lot of my training in my undergrad, which was in health sciences, seeing that the big picture and policy and um, kind of public health also has such an incredible impact on a lot of people. And I anticipate for myself um, struggling moving back and forth between eagle view and mouse view because both are so important and um, both I care so deeply about. So it's nice to get examples of the way that other people manage that balance for themselves. So thank you for that. And it's honestly such a, a, a nice a balance because, you know, like, I, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to go into academics and leadership roles is because on the front lines that like that mouse view, um, very early on, I realized that, yeah, I can make a, a difference, you know, kind of one-on-one but like so many things were so end stage, you know, even as a family doc and, and there were so many system things that you just kept on having to advocate and fight through with each person. And I realized that I'm only one person, like the need is so great that there's no way I could be there for everyone. Right. And, and I even had my own family members who, you know, didn't have great experiences access and care in some cases harm was done and 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 but I can't be everywhere at one I can't be out in outreach and you know be you know be in the city right like there's and so for me um that made me want to do like cultural safety education and to um, bring other healthcare professionals along um in, in their cultural safety journeys and then at the same time, just like realizing that system change and changing culture and, and all of that, it takes time. And sometimes things like even the, the health, uh, like the BC Indigenous Network gatherings, like the Love and Lift Symposium, um, that took probably, I guess this is our third one, so 2018. It took about two years to bring that together. Um, and so, you know, things take time. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes if you're just doing that, you know, eagle eye or that uh, bird's eye view of things, sometimes you could just kind of get tired with just how slow things are, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I, for me, the balance is really important. And I encourage like my residents, you know, 
it's just important to be honest with yourself, right? Like if you think of, if you think of you as there's like two buckets, one is energy in and one is energy out. There's always going to be parts of our jobs and our lives that we want to do or need to do um, that are going to drain our energy. And um, if we're not cognizant to ensure that there's a balance between putting things in that refill our energy, we're going to eventually burn out or we're going to eventually get, you know, too tired. And so um, it's going to be different for everyone. Like some people's energy in is training for a marathon, not my thing, but, <laughs> but you know that. And so it, it does really depend on the type of person. There's people out there like, you know, some of the emerge docs of the world and intensivists who are like high energy who are in there. And for me that like, I could do it, but I would need a lot of time to replenish that energy, if that makes sense. And eventually it's just navigating how many hours you have in a day. <laughs> and so that that's kind of what I look at. And for me, one of my, like, I'm somebody who really tries to be kind and really tries to be compassionate and when I don't have a good balance it's the first thing to go like I become sarcastic I I, I can become resentful very easily and um and so for me as soon as I, I'm I'm not kind as soon as I'm not as you know as caring or as in it um and I you know it doesn't matter who it is it could be a patient it could be you know a waitress it could be one of my residents then you know it's just a signal to me that you know obviously that I'm, I'm starting to fall into too little energy like if I if I don't have it in me to go the extra mile to be extra nice then and kind then you know, then I just feel bad in the end. I just, and I don't want to be that way. And so then I just know I need to tweak things. And so, you know, even right now or this past year with COVID, like it's been intense. And, you know, last summer I, yeah, it was, I was starting to get pretty burnt out. And, and so just needing to recognize I was like working too, like working a little too much, got to, you know, got to take some time off or got to ensure that I'm, taking care of my medicine wheel um, and just work on that balance and even right now like just starting to feel like okay it's been an intense couple months with the vaccine rollout and you know sometimes you do need to push sometimes your medicine wheel needs to be in balance to kind of um, deal with with whatever life is um, handing you right now but now that you know the vaccine rollout's underway or you know the the rollout with indigenous people is going really well you know I'm kind of like okay I need to start setting up a bit better boundaries like gotta start saying no I gotta start looking at some things to let go of I think that it's always iterative right like I kind of work work-life balance or just finding balance it's not static like you don't you never reach a point it's kind of like a teeter-totter <laughs> Um, cause I think people sometimes feel really guilty when they're like, ah, oh, damn, I'm here again. Whereas, you know, I, I tried to just be compassionate about it. I'm like, oh, of course, you know, it's COVID. They had this massive vaccine rollout. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's just like, it's okay. I'm just trying to be compassionate with ourselves. Like it, it doesn't help to beat myself up because maybe, maybe I, I didn't 
um, I had a bad day or, you know, I didn't perform my best. It's just being able to recognize that and being able to learn from it and to try to do better. And really that's all any of us could expect from ourselves and each other. That is a beautiful reminder. Thank you for that. I think that the listeners will also really appreciate that. I wanted to switch gears a tiny bit to something that you mentioned earlier about your role in cultural safety and the teaching that you do around cultural safety. Something I've noticed in my own training so far and some of the conversations that I've had with my colleagues is that it's really hard for people to kind of take the background information or the the context that um, they learn about for Indigenous people and know how to apply that. Um, It's something that I find difficult to articulate because I think cultural safety isn't a like a stepwise approach. Like, I don't think that you just do all of these things and then boom, you're culturally safe and all of your patient interactions are going to be fantastic. But I think that some of uh, the non-Indigenous listeners and non-Indigenous students that I've talked to um, maybe need a little bit of guidance or they have some curiosity about what does cultural safety look like in practice. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways that you create space for your Indigenous patients or um, maybe some of the some of the teaching that you do in the Indigenous Family Medicine residency about this topic. Yeah, no, and I, I just to echo, absolutely. I think the reason why we're, I think the shift happened from cultural competency to cultural safety and humility uh, is partly to get out of that mindset that it's like a tiki box, um, that you could do this course or, you know, and then you're done. Because what we, know is that you know our implicit and explicit biases can evolve and change over time and that ongoing self-reflection critical self-reflection is really the core skill for cultural safety and humility um, because these things are layered um, and a lot of them are deeply subconscious in our our current society like it's not um, it's not generally considered socially acceptable to be overtly racist or overtly sexist. And not that that doesn't happen, it does for sure. I um, mean, we do see explicit biases being said or, you know, um, yeah, people being harmed because of racism and sexism, absolutely. However, a lot of, um, trauma and a lot of negative effects also come out through implicit biases and so things that you may not even be consciously aware of and I've kind of shifted my approach over the years and so I used to and I still I still lecture or give talks about like the ethical space framework you know looking at the ABCs like what it means to be at an Aboriginal person, now we say Indigenous, but the, uh, it doesn't work as well in the um, framework. You know, what are the barriers, um, the, the history of colonization and current colonialism, and then the values around building ethical space, like respect, reciprocity, 
kind of relationship. And then over the years, others have been added like uh, responsibility and reconciliation and kind of work through um, that, that framework and in the context of, you know, why this is important, which is because Indigenous people don't have equitable um, health compared to non-Indigenous people. Uh, in Canada, and we don't have equitable access, and we don't have equitable experiences. And so, and I try to frame that as well in a way that's not just listing Indigenous people as risk factors, like we often see, you know, during, or at least I often see in my, my medical school lectures, um, because I kind of feel like that perpetuates biases. So it perpetuates the idea that Indigenous people are sickly and um, and dirty and you know just are somehow inferior enough to have all these high rates of disease um, even though that's not what they're saying but it, it feeds into that historical message about Indigenous people in my opinion and and so really to say that um, talk but I still think it's important to talk about the disparities because you know as Canadians um, we need to acknowledge the brutal facts of it so that we can make meaningful change to address those disparities. And I often say it's not, it's not a deficit lens on Indigenous people. It's a deficit lens of the colonial structures that cause these disparities. And we need to address those deficits. Indigenous people were healthy and well long before um, settlers got here and that's a something I learned from Dr. Danielle Ben-Smith and and so from that um, I kind of shifted towards an anti-racism approach uh, because what I kind of seen was that people would be like oh yeah you know those things happen but not here or other doctors do that but not me like I treat everybody the same in healthcare we treat everybody the same we just look at the biology we don't see the color of skin and and we know it's not true like we don't have we need so much more data um, and one of the biases built in in medicine is that notoriously research around bias or research around racism was not considered needed and it wasn't funded because it doesn't exist um so we definitely need more especially canadian data but all the data we have does point to the fact that there's these health disparities Clearly there's reasons for that, that are not because indigenous people are somehow inferior and sicker. Um, and so, and if you do believe that, then you're probably overtly racist. <laughs> um, and so clearly there's things in the systems that need to be addressed. But people have a really hard time because it brings up a lot of shame. And so the approach I take is to normalize it, um, to say, you know, we were all born into a racist, sexist culture. We get racist, sexist messaging from the day we're born. And it's not our fault, but we do have a responsibility to start addressing these things. Yeah. And therefore we all have ISIS, including me. Like, you know, yesterday uh, internalized racism was brought up. I have internalized racism. Like I have biases that I need to work through so that, you know, they don't affect my um, and so does everyone else and um, it's actually more dangerous when you're not able 
to see that or when you're not able to critically self-reflect. Yeah, so I kind of take that, the quote-unquote racist anonymous approach, which is like, let's heal, heal this in ourselves and see the effect it has. Um, saying that, I do also think that there's systems and structure things that need to be addressed to promote, promote a safe environment for Indigenous people as well. And so, you know, when we look at the TRC, that's why it says at all levels, because the, the racism section was built in to our institutions. And, and because of that, they will, like, they will um, essentially, I, I don't want to say favor, I don't know if that's the right word, <laughs> but they will privilege Euro-Christian male bodies and values. And that's just you know, that's just the brutal truth. And, and it's going to take, you know, really conservative effort to change that. And I think that it becomes even more dangerous when we start seeing ourselves in a way that doesn't acknowledge the facts, you know, like hiding behind, oh, we're, but we're so multicultural, like, we're so nice, we're so, you know, like, all of these kind of things. And so then when you challenge people on it 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 starts to it brings up shame because you know nobody wants to think of think of themselves as racist or sexist and then it also starts to um feels like it starts to affect people's way that they see themselves the way they see Canada um and that that can be really hard and it is hard work and I often say like if this work doesn't bring up stuff if you if you don't feel strong emotions and you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I've kind of evolved um, and now I kind of, I do pull on different tools. Um, and I think going forward, one of the things that I want to incorporate is, you know, more about some of our, like some, you know, teaching around UNDRIP and TRC and, um, the in plain sight recommendations and that sort of thing as well to kind of show that you know this is pervasive that you know there are system things that need to happen and I apologize if you can hear my husband in the background thank you thank you for that thank you for everything today I am just so appreciative for your time and um, for all of your infinite wisdom I feel like we could chat about about these topics all day, <laughs> but I recognize that um, you have a very busy schedule. So I will just say Cook's Gem and um, I guess offer you a moment if you have any messages to the Indigenous um, people or students listening, then um, I invite you to say that and uh, then we'll call it a day. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I think I would say, and I think I alluded it um, to it yesterday as well, is just to remember that being a healer is a is an intense privilege, and so many of us are called into medicine to be of service, and that that is really important. Um, and you know, I know certainly gives me a lot of meaning in my life but to also remember that life is meant to be enjoyed. And when, whether or not you're 
you're on the front line seeing patients or speaking at a conference about cultural safety or addressing deficits and gaps in the system that sometimes we are it can cause us to to only be looking at the what still needs to happen what we still need to do it's a good practice just to step back to acknowledge acknowledge some progress acknowledge the wins acknowledge your wins like celebrate the heck out of graduating medical school like I don't think I paused enough to do that like to finishing residency like acknowledge your milestones acknowledge your wins and and try to spend time each day or at least eat each week um feeling into joy either by doing something you enjoy or just by remembering joy remembering what it feels like to be in joy and um and to kind of echo some of the comments around yesterday that you know your relationships are so important and your connections to your family your kinship ties things that you do um to keep you connected to your culture all of those things are so vital and even though there's going to be times in medicine where you know, that needs to be your 100% priority or at least close to, um, and you may not have a lot of bandwidth for other things, always remember to come back to it and um, and that medicine will change you. Um, and it should, like it's it's an extreme privilege and, and you're, you are able to be with people in times and places where very few other people will be. Um, and so that should change us, but to remember that you can also change medicine. And so don't be afraid to be who you are and to bring your own unique gifts and perspectives into medicine because we need you to make it better, to continually transform medicine um, in, in all of the different ways that it can be and should be transformed. That was so unbelievably lovely and a fantastic reminder. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Aldred. I can't wait for um, all of the listeners to hear your episode. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. It was a pleasure to be here and an honor to be asked. So, Snuchelia. Yeah.